Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Political give and take may help keep the wilderness wild. Yeah, we had to make compromises, but I think that the end result was that we had a bill that a lot of people could support, and you try and ramp something through local community and you're dead before you even get started. The art of compromise and preserving wild places. Also, the Bush administration plans to streamline the Endangered Species Act, but critics say what's endangered is the law and a nightmare for Little Miss Muffet. Jumping spiders have these uh, elaborate um, displays where they they wave the different legs, they sway back and forth in a a very sort of rhythmical fashion. It's kind of like flamenco dancing. Ah, what a wicked web they weave. Spider love songs. These stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. President Bush doesn't score high marks on environmentalist report cards, and Congress doesn't do much better. But with just a few months left to his term, the president and lawmakers are trying to create an environmental legacy. Living on Earth's Jeff Young hit the trail to learn more. Wilderness advocate Mark Miller leads me through Virginia's Shalvers Run Wilderness to a rocky outcrop he says has one of the region's most spectacular views. Now, I grew up in the mountains, so I've got a pretty high standard when it comes to pretty scenery. But when we reach the cliff, I have to admit, he's right. Oh yeah, that's, that's pretty. This is what you would call a million dollar view. It's just a series of sharp ridges with very narrow valleys. And from Potts Mountain, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven ridges that we can see from this location. The view also represents seven years of work by Miller and others with the advocacy group Campaign for America's Wilderness. That's how long it's taken to get the aptly named Virginia Ridge and Valley Wilderness Bill before Congress. 1,500 acres of the wooded slopes we see here would become wilderness, as would another 42,000 acres in other counties, the biggest such land conservation measure in Virginia in 20 years. Much of that acreage only made it in the bill after long negotiations with county officials, bear hunters who wanted hunters with disabilities to be able to drive into the brush, and mountain bikers who jealously protect their trail access. Yeah, we worked with the mountain bike community in some places, we worked with the horse community in others, and we worked with hunters in other communities. And I guess that meant, you know, from a hardcore wilderness standpoint, you you had to give up a little bit. Yeah, we had to make compromises, but I think that the end result was that we had a bill that a lot of people could support, and you try and ramp something through local community and you're dead before you even get started. The work paid off. The bill held together through committee debate in Congress and is now a part of a package of wilderness proposals from other states, including West Virginia, Idaho, Colorado, and Oregon. 
Campaign for America's Wilderness Executive Director Mike Matz says Congress could create more new wilderness areas this year than it has in the previous five years combined. There are about a dozen of them that seem incredibly viable this year that could make it to the president's desk. What's going on? Why all these all of a sudden? Well, it uh, was kind of nice timing, I think. Many of these things had been sort of percolating through, and then all of a sudden the stars aligned. They'd gotten the kind of support on the local level that they needed, and the uh, leadership changed, and the leadership definitely is more favorable towards these sorts of things. It's been uh, less of a rocky road to hoe to get them done. When Republicans controlled Congress, California Representative Richard Pombo controlled the House Resources Committee, which considers wilderness proposals. In 2004, this was how Pombo explained his opposition to a proposal for Washington State's Wild Sky Wilderness, which would have included some areas with a few old roads and culverts. I believe wilderness is a very special status of protection that we have as a tool to protect land. It is not something that anyone ever imagined that we would be including roads and and bridges and dams and developed areas and try to call them wilderness. Pombo blocked the Wild Sky proposal three times. But in the 2006 elections, Pombo lost. Democrats took control of Congress, and West Virginia Democrat Nick Rahal became chair of what he renamed the Natural Resources Committee. And this year, the Wild Sky Wilderness became law. I think its uh, reason is a difference in philosophy. A lot of these uh, are Republican wilderness bills. They never could see the light of day when uh, that party was in control of this committee. Maybe they viewed it as locking up or preventing development. But uh, under my leadership, uh, I think they have deserved uh, to be recognized and passed, and, and we've done that. Rahal says a bipartisan approach to wilderness is important, and the proposals that succeed are those with strong local support across party lines. Which brings us back to Virginia and Mark Miller. We take a break not far from the Brush Mountain section of the Appalachian Trail, another area on the verge of wilderness protection, and we skip some stones in Craig's Creek. Ooh, good one. That was, that was, that's hard to beat. The community near here is very conservative and not inclined to like big government telling them what they can and can't do in the forest. It might have seemed Miller had an uphill battle here at Brush Mountain. But the word conservation is the route to conservative. And these folks wanted their land behind their homes conserved. Miller knew people in the area were also concerned that a proposed high-voltage power line might come through here, something a wilderness designation could keep at bay. That helped him turn local skeptics into ardent supporters. A lot of times what the folks in the local community say is we want it to be just the way it is. And one of the ways that you can make something stay just the way it is is by giving it a wilderness designation. We'll be long gone, but it will still be here. In wilderness is the preservation of the world, wrote Henry David Thoreau. For this little corner of the world, that preservation is nearly here. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Virginia's Jefferson National Forest. Since the Endangered Species Act became law in 1973, more than 1,300 animals and plants have been put on the list to preserve them and protect their habitat. 
But from the very beginning, opponents, principally mine owners and lumber companies, have tried to change the law. And now, in its final months in office, the Bush administration is proposing sweeping revisions to the Endangered Species Act that critics say threaten the law itself with extinction. The changes would streamline Section 7, the scientific review of federally funded projects that's used to determine if plants and animals are in jeopardy. Kash Arhar is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Fish, Wildlife and Parks at the Department of the Interior. What the proposed rules do is to provide directions towards federal agencies as to which way to make the calls on those very marginal areas where you're not sure as to whether it's going to have an effect, may affect or no effect. That's always sort of a gray area. The administration wants to make it crystal clear that Section 7 can't be used to protect potentially threatened species from projects that emit greenhouse gases. It would be irresponsible and improper to use a Endangered Species Act as a backdoor way to regulate or address global warming. That's Kash Arhar of the Department of the Interior explaining the Bush administration's plan to revise the Endangered Species Act. Lisa Heinzerling has looked at the proposal. She's a professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Welcome. Thank you for having me here. According to the um, Department of Interior, the changes focus exclusively on Section 7 of the Endangered Species Act. And according to them, it's just a minor change, you know. Yeah, that's wrong. The changes allow an agency, let's say the Department of Transportation, which is proposing an action that may affect an endangered species, to make the call about whether that effect will occur without consulting with the wildlife agencies. And so the agencies such as the Department of Transportation have, first of all, uh, no substantial expertise in deciding uh, whether these effects will um, occur with respect to endangered species. And second of all, they like building highways, building dams, and so forth. They are not primarily interested in protecting species. And for that reason, the statute requires cooperation between the agencies interested in doing things like building highways and the wildlife agencies that are interested in protecting species. So when the Department of the Interior and Mr. Arha say this is just for streamlining and to clarify the project proposal process, you say? Those are euphemisms. Streamlining in this administration is simply a euphemism for uh, deregulation. And so, sure, it will streamline the process by cutting out a major protection of the act for species. You know, it was just a few months ago that uh, Secretary of the Interior Kempthorne ruled that the, the polar bear is a threatened species because of climate change. And now that they're saying specifically, as you heard uh, Mr. Arha say, uh, this, you know, we don't want to use uh, the Endangered Species Act as a backdoor for, you know, regulating climate change. It is quite noteworthy that the agency has found it necessary to change longstanding regulations in order to avoid the conclusion that the statute applies to climate change. So it's taken significant steps to 
strengthen causation requirements, to tighten the kind of scientific evidence that's required in order to protect species, simply in order to promote its own policy view that the statute doesn't work for this problem. And so to say that the statute is a backdoor way of regulating climate change, I think, gets the cart before the horse. You should look at the statute and see what it says and whether it addresses the problem. And if you don't think it should, then go to Congress for a correction. But what the administration here has done is to say, we don't think it's a good fit for this problem, and so we're going to declare it inapplicable. Well, why didn't they go to Congress? I mean, it was Congress who made the law. It's Congress who changes the law. Yeah, and in fact, uh, they went to Congress a couple years ago to try to get the act changed, and they were unsuccessful. So I view this as a kind of last gasp attempt to make the statute weaker and to try to ensure that the statute doesn't lift a finger to address climate change. The Endangered Species Act has been around for more than 35 years now. 1,350-some-odd species have been put on the endangered or threatened list. The administration would say, you know, it's not working. Only 17 of the species have recovered. Nine or so have gone extinct while on the list. Things not working. We need to fix it. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think a better way to look at it is to think about what might have happened if the act hadn't been in place. It's not so much exactly how many species have recovered, but how many would have been imperiled if these protections had not been there. Lisa Heinzerling is a professor at Georgetown University Law Center. She specializes in environmental issues. Coming up, iPods are for the birds, so don't fly away. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman with this Encore Edition. The Sonoran Desert extends from northwest Mexico into most of southern Arizona and part of California. It's a landscape stark and beautiful, a huge, hot desert full of unique animals, colorful birds, and bizarre plants. Among them, the giant saguaro cactus. You know, the one that looks like a giant scarecrow with spiny, outstretched arms. But now the saguaro has to fend off a new threat, non-native grasses. They're spreading like wildfire, and that's the problem. The rapidly growing grasses burned fiercely, as Jim Williams of KUNM Radio found when he visited Saguaro National Park near Tucson, Arizona. You give it a... Sometimes a good twist here, kind of like a rope, it holds it together better. And uh, then they get down in the crevices, which makes it a little more creative to get them out. <laughs> On an afternoon that would be called hot by most anyone not from Arizona, Matt Johnson hacks away with a steel pick on a rocky slope in Saguaro National Park. He's one of eight volunteers from the Arizona Native Plant Society who are pulling a stubborn non-native plant called buffalo grass. Incredible. Clint Grafham says he can't believe how fast the Sonoran Desert's filling up with these wheat-colored clumps. Anywhere around the city that I see it, I'll dig it up. I don't care who lawn it's on. <laughs> buffalo grass is from Ethiopia, where it was named after the buffalo who loved it. 
The U.S. government imported it in 1938 and planted it in trial plots for use as cattle food and to reduce soil erosion in the American Southwest. Back then, it had a difficult time getting established. But fast forward about 70 years, and it's now found its way to roadsides in Tucson. And within the past few years, it's spread like, well, wildfire up into the desert and onto its surrounding hillsides. Some scientists believe global warming could be fueling the spread. Tucson is in a multi-year drought, and average summer temperatures have been increasing. Whatever the reason, though, buffalo grass loves it here now. And while the sight of it is troubling, botanists and ecologists are most worried about the fire it will inevitably bring. The grass, which is tender, dry, and dormant for most of the year, burns quickly and at very high temperatures. Matt Johnson has just cleared a skirt of buffalo grass from around the base of a massive saguaro. This saguaro will not now burn if the fire were to come start you know, tomorrow in this remaining patch of grass. Kind of like people, saguaros, if they get more than about 60% of their stem surface burned, same as severe burn victims, the survival rate goes way down. Just a little singeing around you the base they'll handle it. hear them breathing a sigh of relief yeah. when they get this stuff. <laughs> Stephen Hansen, another volunteer here pulling buffalo grass, furrows his brow. There are a lot of homeowners in the foothills and such that have major infestations of this grass. I don't know how where they are, but this uh, this poses a real threat to their property as well. Uh, this grass burns very vigorously with very tall flame, and it's easily able to uh, destroy a house and all the plants, including saguaros, around it. It is the plant from hell. Julio Betancourt is a senior scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. In recent years, he's been all over the media around the world talking about buffalo grass. Betancourt stands and points up at the southern base of the Catalina Mountains, which rise out of what's quickly becoming North Tucson. And you can see all these patches. Like, you see that patch right down there? That's buffalo grass right there. You see that patch over there next to uh, Pima Canyon? Buffalo grass. You start looking down the mountain, and you start picking out all these little patches, and that's all buffalo grass. And eventually, the whole ridge will be buffalo grass. Betancourt calls this neighborhood in which we're standing the high-rent district, where the least costly house is in the vicinity of a million dollars. The views are spectacular from here. But soon, he says, this invasive buffalo grass will create a fire link from those beautiful mountains right into town. And any fire that begins down here will have an easy time rising right up into the saguaros on the hills above. Betancourt says, though, it's not going unnoticed. I think humans have this animalistic visceral reaction to changes on a landscape. And I, I think the same thing is, is already happening with the population in Tucson, that they notice that something's changing, changing very, very fast. Well, the Park Service has noticed, that's for sure. It's partnered with the Arizona Native Plant Society and a relentless group named the Sonoran Desert Weed Whackers to build an impressive team of buffalo grass tackling volunteers. But it's a foot race. The grass seems to be winning. Meg Wiesner is Saguaro National Park's Chief of Science and Resources Management. She says researchers are seeing native plants like the green-trunked Palo Verde and saguaro dying out in stands of buffalo grass, their water supply cut off by the invaders. Southern California has seen invasive grasses take over in similar ways in recent years. Wiesner says think of the fires there as exactly what could happen in Tucson and Saguaro National Park. You'll get flame lengths of 20 or 30 feet. Firefighters can't fight those kinds of fires, and so they're bound to get pretty large. Unfortunately, the buffalo grass is adapted to fire. It burned regularly in Africa where it came from, and that buffalo grass, the tops will be burned off, 
but the plant, it's a bunch of grass, and it'll still be in the ground. It'll come back up and grow denser than ever, making it even more subject to catching fire the next time. That process kills the native Sonoran plants, turning the desert into an African savanna, a grassland. In places in northern Mexico, that's already happened. And it's an expensive problem. Buffalo grass has now spread into a thousand acres of Saguaro National Park. Without the help of volunteers, removing the buffalo grass can cost over $13,000 an acre. Wiesner says the Park Service has also begun herbicide spraying on the grass because digging it up can actually spread the seeds. But spraying costs $1,200 an acre. And because the chemical has to be absorbed by the plant, the buffalo grass can only be sprayed when it's green, which means a very short window of opportunity in the summer. Add to that the fact that the chemical is essentially a version of Roundup, which some studies have shown might harm soil bacteria and amphibians. But the volunteers out on the hillside in the park say fire is a much more immediate and devastating threat. Meg Wiesner says all the challenges require a huge collective effort. The park has partnered with almost everybody who manages a plot of large ground in the Tucson Basin. We have all of the land managing agencies, all the departments of transportation, and we actually had a summit last winter to develop a coordinated effort because it doesn't help to get rid of the grass on one side of the fence if it's on the other. And with a lack of federal funding to deal proactively with invasives, Wiesner says the Park Service is struggling to stay on top of it all. But she adds that with the battalion of volunteers, the city of Tucson and Pima County all in on the buffalo grass fight, she's hopeful. You have to be an optimist in this field. That's the only way to be. Back in the buffalo grass choked Saguaro National Park, volunteer Matt Johnson keeps swinging his pick. It's... Job security, I guess. <laughs> For a living on Earth, I'm Jim Williams in Saguaro National Park. nature's deepest secrets and gather data, scientists sometimes have to trek into remote and forbidding places. But once there, they've got another problem, getting all that data home. As Spectrum Radio's Gene Kumagai reports, researchers now have a new, faster system to retrieve and transmit their information, and that just might transform the way they do science. Careful there, sometimes snakes here. I haven't seen one here in a long time. Just, just watch where you step. Watch, watch this here. Hans Werner Braun picks his way along a brambled-covered path at the Santa Margarita Ecological Reserve in San Diego County, California. He stops at the edge of a cliff and looks down to a river below. Braun, a computer scientist at the University of California, San Diego, says that this is one of the last free-flowing rivers in Southern California. The water burbles along through a narrow, cactus-studded gorge. It's the dry season, so the river is more of a shallow creek at the moment. The idea is to keep the river and its surroundings as pristine and close to their natural state as possible. That's where Braun comes in. Just like a cool location. Over the past seven years, Braun and a few colleagues have built a high-speed wireless network, 
linking up dozens of sites throughout San Diego County. It's called the High Performance Wireless Research and Education Network, or HPREN, and it allows researchers to monitor the tiniest facets of Santa Margarita's ecosystem. There's little fishies in here, crawdads, all kinds of neat stuff. San Diego and, uh, State University biologist Pablo Bryant in, collaborated with Braun. Types of sensors. Kneeling down at the river's edge, he pulls a steel pipe up from the water. This is essentially a multi-probe, stainless steel, Screw the top off. You can see it's it's got the four probes in there. And these are these four probes have pH, dissolved oxygen, conductivity, and temperature. The probes sample the stream every five seconds, and within half a minute, the data is sent through HPREN and can then be accessed via the web by researchers anywhere in the world. The reserve now boasts two other water quality probes as well as 30 weather stations, more than a dozen remote cameras and wildfire detectors, and seismic sensors. Each device has a particular use. The cameras, for instance, are triggered by motion detectors, and they record any wildlife that happens to wander by the lens, such as hawks in flight and coyotes on the prowl. Data from all the sensors passes in and out of the reserve via HPREN at a lightning-fast 45 megabits per second. The use of wireless sensors and networks, Bryant says, is creating a paradigm shift in field research. There's two things that are happening. You're getting the data in real time so you can see if a sensor fails or if your data is, uh, is good. And you can also have m many more sensors in the field. And all we're trying to do as technologists is create an infrastructure in a way to attract scientists to kind of do science in a new direction. Looking at an aerial map of San Diego County, it's easy to see why HPREN has been so successful. The county covers some 4,500 square miles, about twice the size of Delaware, and the rugged geography makes it difficult for regular telecom companies to offer service at remote sites. That same forbidding terrain is ideal for the mountaintop radio antennas that form the backbone of HPREN. The network isn't just being used to study conditions on the ground. At the northern end of the county, atop Palomar Mountain, it's also helping astronomers gaze at the stars. Braun drives his Jeep 4x4 up a winding mountain road to Palomar Observatory. A scattering of gleaming white domes stands in a clearing. The observatory's been operating since 1949, but newer, more powerful telescopes in Hawaii, Chile, and out in space threaten to eclipse older sites like Palomar. Spokesman Scott Cardell says connecting to HPREN helps keep the observatory competitive. It's through this antenna that we actually can move massive amounts of data and have automated telescopes that hunt for asteroids and look for planets around other stars and allows us to be a, an effective modern observatory, even on telescopes like this one, that are 60 years old. With the HPREN connection, researchers can now do what's called rapid response astronomy. Because astronomers can access their data almost immediately, instead of days or even months later, they can look for fleeting or fast-evolving phenomena like asteroids and supernovas. If they happen to spot something interesting, they can track that patch of sky over consecutive nights or call up more sensitive instruments to take a closer look. On the right is our 60-inch telescope, and that's automated to be a rapid-responding telescope for gamma reverse. 
So there's a NASA satellite called SWIFT that locates them and sends a message directly to the computer there. And if the object's visible at Palomar and the weather's okay, it'll stop what it's doing and catch it. And usually it can be there making a measurement of the, the gamma ray burst within two minutes of the satellite having detected it. Cardell says HP Wren's high bandwidth is giving new life to old telescopes. And scientists aren't the only people benefiting from the wireless network. Indian reservations, the San Diego Sheriff's Department, and several state wildfire command centers are now connected, too. And thanks to HP Wren, school children are able to explore places like Santa Margarita and Palomar right from their classrooms. Although Braun started the project as an academic exercise in computer networking, it's these real-world applications that keep him going. My background is really in, comp- is really in computer networking. It's not wireless and it's certainly not sensors or so. But what is really interesting to me is, is being able to work with the applications, work with the eco- ecological reserves, work with the astronomers, work with Native Americans, work with first responders and so on, see what they really need. And I come up with some cool new sensor that we deploy and develop it together and make it work together. Braun says he's happy to foster as many new research and educational connections as his network will allow. For Living on Earth, I'm Jean Kumagai. Our story on the researcher's wireless network comes to us courtesy of Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum, the magazine of technology insiders. Okay, birders, this bud's for you. White earbuds, that is. You know, those telltale signs of musical isolation that cut people off from the rest of the world? Well, what if the iPod could instead connect you with the great outdoors? Enter commentator Noah Stricker, who has repurposed the iPod for iBirding. The little gizmo more than proved its worth one spring morning in an impressive demonstration in a patch of ponderosa pine forest. I was on a mission for a sighting, and after I decided which songbird I wanted to see, I dialed up the pre-programmed call on my iPod, broadcast the song through an external speaker, and bada-bing, there it was, a male chipping sparrow, hormones pumping, singing madly from the branch in front of me. Like magic, dial a bird. In truth, iBirding is far from magic. You have to know exactly where the birds are and when they'll be there. Knowledge of vocalizations helps immensely, as you should be able to differentiate between an actual warbler song and a recording broadcast by the guy across the way with his own iPod. Occasionally, though, luck is all it takes. On another occasion, it was near midnight, and I was standing alone in the inky blackness of an Oregon night. A creepy silence blanketed the scene. I had a tip that barred owls were in the area, and I wanted to see one. In the past ten minutes, however, nothing had stirred. It was time for Plan B. I dialed up barred owl on my trusty iPod and played the recording, a raucous, who cooks for you all, twice. The silence intensified. Suddenly, a loud swoosh sliced the air above my head, and I aimed my light to find the owl sitting not five feet from my hat, staring down with somber, watery black eyes. I was out of there in a snap and home to bed before it could blink. As a tool for modern birders, 
The iPod is both handy and reasonably inexpensive. It goes with your state-of-the-art binoculars, spotting scope, digital camera, long camera lenses, cell phone with pre-programmed rare bird alert numbers, tuna sandwiches, and BRDBOY license plates. You can get everything but the plates. Sorry, those are mine. Don't expect an iPod to make you an elite birder. It can't replace actual knowledge and experience, and it takes a fair amount of time to set up. On outings, I follow common sense with my iPod, trying to be considerate and unobtrusive of birds' activities, especially in heavily birded areas, and never using playbacks for attracting any species that is threatened, endangered, or of special concern. As a birding tool, the iPod can be a great way to reach out to the world around us, and that's cool not just for the iPod generation, but for any generation. Noah Stricker is associate editor of Birding Magazine. In 2004, he was named Young Birder of the Year. You can learn more about him in the book Good Birders Don't Wear White, 50 Tips from North America's Top Birders. Just ahead, Sir David Attenborough and the Art of Discovery. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Elizabeth Windsor has some interesting pictures in her home. That would be Windsor Castle, where the Royal Library contains her collection of amazing rare things, which happens to be the title of a book edited by Sir David Attenborough, who was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. His book, Amazing Rare Things, The Art of Natural History in the Age of Discovery, chronicles how 15th century artists depicted the strange and unusual specimens adventurers found in the New World. Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood spoke to Sir David about how the book came about. Well, uh, the the Royal Collection has um, a gallery attached to it uh, and regularly shows things from the collection. There's a great wealth of natural history drawings uh, in the collection and it was decided to do a selection from there. And I was uh, invited to help in selecting the pictures and selecting the artists, which was, of course, a, an extraordinary privilege. I mean, to uh, riffle through, if I may put it that way, uh, riffle through drawings by Leonardo da Vinci <laughs> is, uh, is quite a privilege. Indeed. In fact, uh, those horse studies, I mean, to look inside uh, the mind of an artist and see how he was, was doing the studies. Yes, I mean, uh, artist is an inadequate word, really, for, for Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, it's an accurate word, of course, but Leonardo's curiosity into how things worked is just mind-blowing. And the details, and of course the sheer beauty of the drawings, is, is absolutely extraordinary. Leonardo, the quintessential, perhaps the definitional Renaissance man. Um, in your book, Sir David, you quote something that he wrote around 1490 that shows that he was even formulating a Gaia hypothesis. Could you read from that for us, please? Well, uh, Leonardo wrote, Just as man is composed of earth, water, air, and fire... So this body of the earth is similar. Whereas man has bones within himself, the supports and framework of the flesh, the world has rocks, the supports of the earth. 
If man has within him the lake of blood, wherein the lungs expand and contract in breathing, the body of earth has its ocean, which also expands and contracts every six hours with the breathing of the world. As from the said lake of blood arise the veins, which spread their branches through the human body, likewise the ocean fills the body of the earth with an infinite number of veins of water. So indeed, a vision that the earth is a, an organism, the Gaia hypothesis, uh, just like a human, and we get this from Leonardo da Vinci in 1490. 90, that's I guess correct. Today's environmentalists should uh, move over for a moment. <laughs> But it's a remarkable vision, isn't it? And it shows such understanding of both the earth and the body. Perhaps one could say of the people who are in your book that they're all, at the same time, artists, scientists. And perhaps that's what, due to the time, that if you were going to tell the story of the things that you were observing, that you would need to have uh, the pictorial representation, and <laughs> there was no one else to do it but yourself. Yes, uh, but some weren't even scientists. I mean, it's quite remarkable how you actually have to know how something works um, before you can draw it accurately. And that's um, a very interesting little problem. I mean, there's a drawing from a man called Cassiano del Pozzo. He commissioned artists to draw these things. And the artist was faced with, for example, a sloth, or maybe you call it a sloth, but it, as you well know, it spends its life hanging upside down. Now, you couldn't possibly know that it spends its life upside down if you'd just been sent the skin, unless you really understood the mechanics of the thing. And they looked at this, and they naturally drew it as though it was standing horizontally, but in a normal sort of way, with its feet beneath it. And the result is, I mean, to our eye, of course, grossly unnatural, almost, almost comic, because it doesn't work that way. So it's, you really have to understand about these creatures before you can draw them accurately. One of the most interesting characters that I'd never heard of before I, I, I read your book was this woman who went to Suriname. Can you tell me her story, please? Yes, yeah, Sibylla Merian was her name. Uh, she was a widow, and she earned her living selling insect specimens in Holland. And in the in the mid-50s, she decided that she'd like to go and see many of these specimens that she had uh, been selling and draw them in the wild. And so off she hopped with her daughter to Suriname. And there she collected caterpillars and watched them as they, as they metamorphosed into the adult insects, not knowing what they were going to turn into, and produced, uh, as, as a result of this, some magnificent plates which subsequently came very famous indeed, and very beautiful they are too. You can certainly tell uh, a Marian drawing. She has a, a deep affection for curls. I mean, she can't, she can't resist the curl. So what was her intended audience? For these uh, early artists of nature, who was expected to look at their works? Well, um, book buyers, uh, there has been always um, people ever since the invention of printing who buy books for the beauty of their, of their plates. And what more beautiful subject can you have than animals and plants? And Marion, as I said, earned her living uh, by selling insects, by insect specimens. Um, but her books became very highly treasured and, and very sumptuously produced too, so that she made her living by selling her books. Now, in your book, only a couple of the artists that you have here ever traveled outside of Europe to, to go visit some of these far-flung places like Indonesia or Suriname. 
How did the other artists get access to some of the animals and plants that they uh, painted? They were sent back to Europe from Roman times onwards. I mean, the Romans imported animals from uh, Africa, sometimes to slaughter in the Colosseum, but uh, sometimes because they were really strange things. In the 16th century, a rhinoceros was imported into Europe, and and Albrecht Dürer, the great uh, German artist, drew pictures of this which circulated around uh, around the whole of Europe because the image of this extraordinary armoured creature was so remarkable. And, of course, there was a huge flood uh, from the 16th century onwards with the discovery of the New World. New creatures being brought in all the time, and people with their... You can almost see their jaws sacking as yet another extraordinary animal is unloaded from one of the ships. I have to say that looking at uh, the work of some of these early natural history artists, uh, I see a lot of abnormal or monstrous forms of creatures, or dragons, of course, and deformed pieces of fruit. What's the appeal in seeking out these monsters in nature? Well, it's not unusual for us. We, too, think um, in biology that things that are abnormal, there is something to be learned from them. And there's also something exciting, which is something rare. I mean, today, people are fascinated by white tigers, for example. They think, my goodness, how extremely interesting they must be, because how rare they must be now. Biologically, one knows perfectly well that that is a very simple genetic change uh, which produces an albino, and these are albino animals, and and that uh, albinism can be transmitted from one generation to the next. So we today still have this fascination with the rare and the odd. And, of course, in a more superstitious age, a lot of people thought that some of these things uh, were signs from the gods. Uh, And indeed, today, there are parts of the world where people will tell you that they've seen a deformed root, um, uh, some Christian symbol or other. Sir David, you've made a number of uh, nature films, um, including, well, most recently, the stunning series Planet Earth. And thank you so much. It's It's a tremendous gift, your work. Thank you. So, so tell me, um, to what extent do you feel that pull to the exotic, to the unknown, in some of the work that you do? Oh, I think all of us um, are um, drawn to seeing the unusual. I mean, it's exciting to see the unusual, and it's very nice to think that maybe you were the first person ever to see something. Tell me perhaps something that you have seen for the first time. Uh, maybe it was in a remote place. Or, tell me the story. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by birds of paradise. I have been since I was a, a kid. Don't ask me why. Well, yes, you can ask me why, because I, I can why? tell you. because they're, they're, well, <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, because they are unfailingly beautiful and extraordinary and unpredictable and, in many cases, unimaginable. I mean, there are 42 different species of them, and they have amazing feather decorations, which the males display in courtship dances of great elaboration. And they live in a very, very remote part uh, of the world, that is to say, central New Guinea. And uh, there are still species that have never been filmed in performing their courtship dances. Sir David, before you go, could you tell us perhaps uh, an illuminating or or perhaps your most exciting uh, travel story from all these many places you've visited all these years? Well, uh, a 
50 years of doing it, I, <laughs> it's difficult to choose. But let me, let me revert to Birds of Paradise. There was a particular Bird of Paradise I was wanting to see, and uh, it displays on the ground. It's a remarkable bird which um, clears a space, in an arena in, on the floor of the jungle, of the rainforest, removing with great care every little tiny twig, every little bit of dead leaf until the ground is absolutely clear. And then in the early dawn, uh, it dances. The male turns up at this, calls to the female, the females assemble, uh, and then the male performs this amazing dance, displaying his plumes to the females. Most of the time, at the end of the dance, the females uh, will look at him and just fly off and think, and you can hear them saying, you know, if that's the best you've got, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> but, um, but, but, <laughs> but if he's lucky, you see, he's going to be OK. Anyway, we spent a long time looking for this, and at the end of six weeks, we found an arena. And it was on the edge, on the top of a ridge, uh, in a very wet part of the rainforest of western Iran, of western New Guinea. And we set up uh, a hide that that night. And I decided that in the morning we had two hides, one side uh, on each side of the, of the of the arena. And the cameraman was going to go into one, and I went into the other. And we decided that we wouldn't take a. Uh, a sound recordist, I would do what I could there, but also we would have an electronic system of talking, me talking to the cameraman, so that um, he could hear what I said and I did, and we were whispering. And the bird came down and he did its dance, and I was just simply thrilled to the marrow. And then the bird finished and flew away, and the cameraman and I scrambled down this very steep uh, side of the ridge towards our camp. And as we came down, the recordist who had left in the camp, the sound recordist, came out and waved, and I yelled back, and I said, we got it, we got it. And the recordist said, I knew the precise moment that you saw it, because through that microphone which was on your chest, the radio microphone, I could hear your heartbeat, and it suddenly doubled its speed. And that's the reaction which one seeks to create in viewers looking at television programmes of the natural world. And in many ways, that's the reaction that I'm sure these artists who are in this book hoped to create in those who came to look at their drawings. Sir David Attenborough's new book is called Amazing Rare Things, The Art of Natural History in the Age of Discovery. Thank you so much, Sir David. It's a pleasure. Sir David Attenborough spoke with Living on Earth's executive producer, Steve Kerwood. Now, you've probably heard of the movie The Kiss of the Spider-Woman. Well, this is the music of the Spider-Man. To eavesdrop on spiders, Damien Elias uses a laser Doppler vibrometer, whatever that might be. Elias is a researcher at the University of Toronto. Producer Jeff Rice of the Western Soundscape Archive snared the Spider-Man at work. One other thing about spiders, and one of the reasons that I'm interested in them, is they're kind of masters at vibration domain. Um, the, the ones on webs, uh, males, for example, pluck songs to females. It really is like plucking uh, a guitar string.
but not all spiders uh, live on webs, and so um, a lot of other spiders, um, they use sort of vibrations, uh, but they're, they're sort of vibrating on leaves or something like that and not webs. One of the wolf spiders that I work on uh, make their sounds by drumming. They use uh, the patty palps, which are uh, their genitalia, basically, and they're banging, bang them against the ground in stereotype patterns. And they also use their legs, also, and so they use their petty palps and their legs to drum this love song to females. Jumping spiders have these uh, elaborate um, displays where they, they wave the different legs, they sway back and forth in a, in a very sort of rhythmical fashion. It's kind of like flamenco dancing. Right? I, uh, I kind of see it. The surface that, that, uh, that you heard it vibrating was actually on a nylon surface, uh, actually a pantyhose. It's just easier to control than, say, uh, having them vibrate on leaves or rocks or something because they could be quite complicated, the, the vibrational characteristics of them. I basically came to it with an in interest in uh, sensory systems, and I was interested in, in acoustics, uh, vibrational or hearing, and uh, they just happen to be such charismatic creatures. I find spiders very charismatic that, that as soon as I started uh, recording from them, and it ended up that not a lot of work has been done, so that really quickly kind of fed upon itself, and I just really became a great system to study. Damien Elias is a researcher at the University of Toronto. Our story was produced by Jeff Rice for the Western Soundscape Archive. We leave you this week in the midst of a summer night's dream. Bernie Krauss recorded this insect chorus and the occasional bullfrog in the Cascade Mountains of Northern California for his wildsanctuary.com soundscape series. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Kim Gittleson and Jessica Elise Smith. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Today's show was ably engineered by Luke Borders. 
Allison Lyris-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.